There's an incredible uh, phenomena going on in our day in the movie realm, the media, and it's called teen dystopia. Teen dystopia is somewhat of a, a negative aspect of, for, for teens, and it, it's the opposite of utopia. See, me growing up, it was all about utopia and happy endings, and for teen dystopia, it's not quite that way. There's, there's a lot of tragedy and trials and trials, and there is a movie series that's kind of caught the media by storm, and it is The Hunger Games. And just recently, they released out in DVD, uh, Mocking J2. And, and if, how many of you have seen that as it's just come out? Not that I'm recommending it, but if you, have you seen Mocking J2 as it's come out? How many of you have read the book? How many of you have, even, how many of you have ever heard of Mocking J? Raise your hand. Okay, so some of you out there. there there's, a, there's a scene in there that I think is rather significant, and it applies to what I want to talk about this morning. PETA... And Katniss, in the very first movie, we find, have gone to the Hunger Games. And I'm not going to describe what the Hunger Games are, except to say this, that the capital is trying to suppress rebellion. They use the Hunger Games to do this. And there is starting to be an uprising within the people saying, we've had enough, and we want to, we, we want to do away with the, those who are in leadership. To do this, they concoct a plan and they brainwash PETA. PETA and Katniss are kind of the heroes as the movie sequence goes on. And now they've taken PETA and they brainwashed him. And I'm not going to get into the details of that. It's simply to say in the last movie, he is trying to come out of this brainwashing because he loves Katniss. And he begins to ask Katniss a series of questions because he confesses what they did was they, they gave him this poison that was painful. They, he associated it with certain pictures. Some of these pictures were real and some of them were not real. And so he needs her to speak truth at this moment. And he begins to ask her a series of questions, her favorite color, you know, things that she likes, things that she doesn't like. Does she, in fact, love him, uh, real or not real? And she is answering real, real. And I find that significant because many times in, in our life, we want to know what is real. How many of you have ever heard the resurrection story before? Raise your hand. Okay, and I would venture to say probably every hand, except for those who are really itty-bitty, um, like Leo back there. But most, if not all of us, have heard this resurrection story. I want, you to, I want to bring your attention to this passage that I'm going to read. It's just a few verses. It's in Acts chapter 2, and it's right after the day of Pentecost. Peter is preaching, and he's declaring this awesome news of the resurrection. And he says in verse 22, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. The next word in my Bible is this word, but... And I want you to highlight it. I want you to put a box around it or a circle it or color code it. I want, you, I want that word to stand up. It's a contrast word. Jesus was nailed to the cross, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible. 
impossible, underscore that word twice if you would, impossible for death to keep, to, to keep its hold on him. And then it begins to quote a passage that David wrote about a thousand years before Jesus concerning the Messiah's resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, 1,000 years beforehand. Now, we've heard this story before, but here is my question. Real or not real? Did Jesus really, really rise from the dead? Or is this just a story that kind of got promoted amidst the despair and and hoping for a, a a Messiah to arrive on the scene and, and set people free. What is this story? Is it real or is it like, because if it is real, let's, let's face the fact. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was an awesome display of the power of God that changes mankind's life. Totally changes our life. What I want to do right now is I want us to kind of stand back a little bit and just for a few minutes, I want us to ask that question, real or not real? Is this resurrection real or is it not real? Now, if we were to examine this in a courtroom, we would call the eyewitnesses up. Some of those eyewitnesses would be, help me out here, who would some of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection be? Give me some names. John, Peter. Mary Magdalene, thank you, Mary Smith. Uh, other names, John, okay, Thomas. You know, all these, they witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, meaning that Jesus appeared before them. He actually ate with them. Now, let's put these people on trial. Some of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John specifically, wrote a story about Jesus, and it's contained in what we call the four Gospels. Now, one of the ways in which we examine an eyewitness and compare their testimonies to see, do they line up? Do they match? Now, let me just tell you this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are very similar, but yet they are very different. It's funny, as the critics step back and want to hurl accusations at the Gospels, many of them say, well, the Gospels, they're just so similar, You know, I mean, it's as if there was one gospel and they all copied off of it. So it makes it invalid. But on the other hand, guess what what the others do? You know, the gospels are just so different that uh, it seems as if their perspectives are contradictory. And that proves that they can't be true. Do do you see the, the tension here between real or not real? Here's a reality check. When the women went to the tomb... One version, in one gospel, John's, says that it was still dark when Mary Magdalene went out. In Luke 24, it says that it was early in the morning. Matthew 28 says that it was at dawn, and Mark 16 says that it was just after sunrise. And so the critics look at this and say, okay, we're putting the witnesses on the stand here, and how can it be that it's dark and it's after sunrise? All right, there's a contradiction here. They're too different. But can I ask you, how many of you have ever gotten up early in the morning to exercise, go for a walk or go for a run, and you would say, yep, I headed out of my house and it was still dark, and yet by the time you got back, now the sun had risen and 
It's after sunrise. Mary and those who were with her left when it was dark, arrived to the tomb, discovered the stone rolled away at sunrise. It was dark, and a few minutes later, the sun had risen. There's no contradiction here. I think that passes the test. Mark 16 says that there was one young man who appeared in the tomb. When the ladies went into the tomb, the stone was rolled away. When they went in, one young man appeared to them, or one young man spoke to them. Luke tells us that two men were there. John 20 says that there were two angels. Is this a contradiction? May I just add that Luke, even though in the very beginning he says two men, later he describes them as two angels. So there were obviously two angels that appeared as men, though in shining clothing. And so if we were to step back, we would have to conclude there's no contradiction here. There were at least two. There could have actually been three. But there were at least two, and one of them did the talking. So our critics, even though they try to... uh, accuse the Gospels of being fraudulent, of being legend, of being embellishments of what's truth, the Gospels pass the test with this. How about when the, in John, uh, excuse me, Matthew 28, it says the ladies are approaching the tomb. Then it segues and it says that an angel appeared on the stone, rolled it away, and the four Roman soldiers fell to the ground as dead. And yet when the women arrive, this angel speaks to them the very things that the angel in the tomb had said. And so the skeptic says, now wait a second, we do have a problem here. Were the angels inside of the tomb that said this, or were they outside of the tomb sitting on the rock? I don't know if you've ever looked at this, but if you examine Matthew, Matthew in no way is saying that when the angel spoke those words to the women that he was still sitting on the rock. Now, here's my point. It is so easy for us when we're examining real or not real for us to jump to conclusions and to be able to charge the Gospels that they are not true. Here's a reality check. Every single discrepancy can be explained, and most of them very easily. Some of them with a little bit more difficulty, but completely understandable. I think if we are going to look at the resurrection of Jesus, we're going to have to begin to say, you know what, these guys... Their story fits so well. It is so similar and yet so different. They didn't just get their ideas together and say, okay, Matthew, you write this down, and Mark, you write this down, and John, don't forget this. It didn't happen like that. They told us exactly what they saw. Exactly what they saw. Lawyers. Simon Greenleaf, back in 1848, he was the the law professor that kind of helped catapult um, Harvard Law into fame. And (coughs) Simon Greenleaf wrote a book. He examined these resurrection stories, and he says, I find no contradiction amongst these stories. This is, the the differences are the result of different perspectives, but they all 
saw the same thing. And it was a powerful book that he wrote. I think if we were to step back a bit and examine this and ask the resurrection of Jesus, as powerful as it is, is it real or is it not real? We would have to say real. Now here is my question. What are the implications of that resurrection in our lives today? If it is real, I mean, here is someone who is dead, the son of God who is dead, and he comes to life. Can you imagine the power that would be able to make something like that happen? I want you to turn with me to the book of, excuse me, one second. You're right there in, in Acts 2, right? What an, look at verse 24. Absolutely awesome, awesome verse. I, I can't leave this verse until I talk about it. It says that it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Absolutely impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This word impossible comes from two Greek words. It's, it's, the, it's the word not and the word possible. Now, nothing big about the word not. It just means not, okay? But the word impossible, something cool about that. It is actually, it actually comes from this Greek word, dunamis. How many of you have ever heard that Greek term before dunamis? A couple of hands, okay? Do you know we get the word, the English word dynamite from that word dunamis? That word dunamis is found throughout the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, referring to the miraculous powers or the display of the miraculous powers of Jesus and the disciples. People who were miraculously healed, miraculously raised from the dead. This is the dunamis of God, the power of God. And now to use that English word dynamite, here's the picture that I want to paint for you. There is, a, there is a pack of dynamite with a three-day fuse on it that's been buried in the ground. And after three days, that dynamite explodes. That dunamis power explodes. The ground is not going to be able to hold. I mean, people use dynamite to blast holes in mountains, church. The, this, the, the ground erupted with power. And it says that the grave could not hold him back. The power of the grave was too weak. The power of God was too strong. This is the dunamis. This is the resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead. That power is what we're talking about this morning. So as we turn to Ephesians chapter 1, look at this. Ephesians chapter 1, I'm just going to spend a few moments on these because I want to share with you some things about the, the resurrection power that I believe many of us this morning need to see displayed in our lives. But it says in Ephesians 1, 18 and 19, it says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and Listen to this, and is incomparably great power for us who what? Who believe. This morning, if you believe in Jesus Christ, this incomparably great power 
is for you. But he goes on to say something about this incomparably great power. He says, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he did what? When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. This power that God exerted when he raised his son Jesus from the dead is... Can you just take, if your Bible has the word like, could you put parentheses around it? Because that's actually not found in the Greek. That power is the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And that is the incomparably great power for us who believe. So here's what God is telling us. If I am powerful enough to raise my son Jesus from the dead, guess what? If you believe in me, that very same power is now available to you. And this is Paul's prayer. God, manifest that incomparably great power that raised Jesus from the dead, manifested amongst those who believe. One more verse over there in chapter 3. Paul prays again for the Ephesians in verse 20. And he says this, and, and I don't know if I grew up in a traditional church and at the end of every service they gave a benediction and many times they would give this verse as a benediction. And it would say, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Man, I can imagine a lot. I don't know about you. According to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see, that incomparably great power, that resurrection power, he says it is in us. It is in you. It is not something that has to come from the outside and come into us. That that does happen, by the way, but that happens at conversion. That happens when we allow the Spirit of God to come into us and rescue us. And then when we ask him to baptize us in his spirit and fill us, that power by his spirit is in us. It's in you who believe. According to his power that is at work within us. And then I want you to turn to the right, just a few pages, Ephesians, excuse me, Philippians 3.10. And Paul says this, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. That is not a question and some somehow like I hope but somehow meaning, I have no idea how or why God would do this apart from his great compassion and grace and mercy and love. I don't know why he would do this for me because I was an enemy of Christ. That is what he means by somehow. Not somehow as, wow, man, I'm really hoping he does it because the Bible says that we can know for sure. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. We, as believers in Jesus, we can know that we have eternal life. As believers in Jesus, we can attain to the resurrection of the dead. And it is certain. 
But here I want to focus on the resurrection power. This is Paul's request. He says, there are three things that I want. And that second one is, I want to know the power of Jesus' resurrection. Is he going to know this power by reading a good book? Is he going to know this power by maybe listening to someone's testimony, as awesome as that would be? When he's talking about knowing the power of Jesus' resurrection, he is actually asking God, I want to not just know about it, I want to experience the resurrection power of Jesus in my life. I want to tell you a story. Many years ago when I was in seminary, I was actually my, in my last year, or it's actually second to the last year, and a good friend of ours, both Meredith and mine as a family, they had gone over to Kenya, and the year before they kicked all the missionaries out of Kenya, they were allowed to minister with uh, someone who functioned very apostolically in, in Kenya. And John, he had an opportunity to uh, have a kind of a crusade, and there were hundreds that were gathered. Many were coming to Christ, and many were being healed. I don't know if, if you're a visitor this morning, if you've ever seen someone being healed. Maybe you think that that's just all in someone's imagination. Can I tell you? right now over the next several minutes, how real God is when he heals. And as they were bringing people forward, and and John is not one given to exaggeration at all. He's a very detailed person, very accurate. He teaches the word with great accuracy, and he loves detail, and he loves accuracy. And so he was telling me, he said, Mike, I was amazed. They were bringing people up, and one dad brought his 12-year-old boy up, and Mike, I've never seen anything like this. The boy's arms were tucked in like this, and his legs were tucked under him, and he could not straighten them out. Twelve years old, he was so skinny, and he was sitting in this wheelchair, and my friend laid hands on this boy, and he, and he cried out to God to heal him and said, In Jesus' name, be healed. And nothing happened. And he said, Mike, it was... It was almost humorous. It was sad, but it was almost humorous. He looked up at me, and he said this in the Kenyan language. Huh. As if, it's not supposed to happen this way. He's supposed to be healed. And so we went back, and he laid hands on the boy again. And he said, in Jesus' name, be healed. And at that moment, the boy, and and he's telling me, John's telling me, he said, Mike, It was amazing. The 12-year-old boy jumped up out of the wheelchair, stood on the wheelchair, and extended his arms and his legs. He jumped off, and he began to dance in front of everybody. And he said, I have never seen the power of God so real in my my life. This was not something that was uh, faked. This was genuine. It was real. And God did so many healings that day. Now, can I just say, you know, God is not just exercising his resurrection power in Kenya. God is exercising his resurrection power here in the United States in our midst as well. You've heard me tell this story before, but some of you have not. When Mary and Steve Smith had just given their hearts to Christ, it wasn't within, I don't just a, a year, few years, and... They wanted to have children. 
And so they'd been praying and praying, and Mary had not conceived. And so they came and they said, Mike, can you pray for us? Because we want to be able to have a child. But it, whatever reason, I'm not conceiving. So we had the two of them there in our living room, and we were praying over them. And in the midst of the prayer, God just spoke to my heart. And he, and he spoke one word, and that was it. And it was bitterness. And I paused. I just stopped mid-sentence. And I said, Mary, is there someone that you need to forgive? Is there bitterness in your heart? And she began to relate a very recent story of someone who had done her wrong. And she began to realize that she was being filled with anger, with hurt, with bitterness towards this person. And found that she was not able to forgive them. I said, Mary, God is speaking very clearly. You have got to forgive this person. Number one, Jesus says, if we refuse to forgive others, he will not forgive us. That's how serious this is. But you're crying out to God to heal you, and he's saying, first, you need to forgive. And so Meredith and I walked her through just releasing this person and canceling the debt that she believed they owed her, which, by the way, really is the essence of forgiveness. Canceling that debt you believe they owe you so that you conclude they owe me nothing. They owe me nothing. If you're here this morning and you believe someone owes you something and there's hurt and anger inside of you, I'm going to challenge you, cancel their debt. You just say, God, I free them. They owe me nothing. I fully forgive them. Well, here's what happened. She prayed that prayer. Meredith and I laid hands on her and prayed the prayer. God led us to pray for healing and conception. And two weeks later, guess what happened? That's right. Two weeks later, Mary conceived. And May Saxon... Uh, May is the result of that healing power of God in Mary's life and Steve's life. And they were able to have not just one, but two children that God's blessed them with. There was a gentleman many, many years ago, Steve and Mary, you've been around for a while that you'll probably remember them. But a gentleman by the name of Rick, his dad was of a retirement age. And he, uh, he had a repair, but he sold vacuums and he did all the repairs in the back. And he also liked to play guitar, but for the last couple of years, he, he couldn't. Um, Rick had been inviting his dad to Powerline. And Rick's dad had never, ever given his heart to Jesus Christ. There was a hardness there, a standoffishness, keeping God at arm's length. And as he was sitting in the service, and he'd been coming to the church, I don't know, maybe for a year. Maybe for an entire year. And he would sit there and he would listen. And when I would ask him questions after the service, I could sense there's a softening of his heart that was going on. And in this particular service, I I asked if there was anyone who would like to be healed. And Rick's dad did one of these. Not this, but one of these, just kind of looking around. And I saw it, and and I went over, and I sat next to him, and I asked him, I said, how can I pray for you? 
And I cannot describe it. He's a very affable, outgoing, verbal type of person. And he could not speak at that moment. He looked at me and he tried to say words, but nothing was coming out. And his wife finally leaned over and she said, he wants you to pray for his arthritis. He has rheumatoid arthritis. He can't play the guitar anymore. It's extremely painful every time he tries to repair vacuum cleaners. And he would like prayer that that God would heal him. And so we prayed for him. And I laid hands on him. And I prayed for him. And I sensed that there was something else. Like God wanted to do something else. And so I looked at him and I said, do you? Do you want prayer for something else? And tears began to well up in his eyes. And he couldn't speak again. And he just, he shook his head. And the Lord spoke directly to my heart. And I asked him, I said, do you want to ask Jesus into your life today? And he shook his head, yes. And he bent, he bowed his his head in prayer. And I began to pray over him. I can't remember if he was able to speak a prayer or not. But you could tell the sincerity in his heart. as, As at least in his heart, he was crying out that God, that Jesus would rescue him from his sin. And he had led a sinful life. And God had, has been, had been bringing him closer and closer. And at that moment, people went back and they got Rick, who was in the nursery, and said, Rick, you got to come out here. Your dad has given his heart to Jesus. And and Rick is excited and he runs out there and he's gathered, people are gathered around by this time and there his dad is. And Jesus had come in and had invaded Rick's life and set, and, and Rick's dad's life and had set him free and he was a new person. The very next week I went into the vacuum cleaner store and um, I, I, he, was, he was busy, I think, with a vendor or something so Rick's dad couldn't talk, um, but his mom did. And his mom worked the front counter, and he said, Pastor Mike, you're not going to believe this. But ever since you prayed over uh, my husband, he's been able to play the guitar. He's been able to uh, do repairs. And the rheumatoid arthritis that was in his joints, all of his joints, she was really emphasizing this, it's completely gone. He has no more pain at all. And rheumatoid arthritis is the worst type of arthritis that there is. Church, this is the power of the resurrection of Jesus that not only set Rick's dad free so that God came in and changed up his life, forgave him of all his sins, but healed him in the name of Jesus Christ. This is that power that is this incomparably great power that it is at work within us who believe. It's at work within you. If you believe in Jesus today, That very same power that raised Jesus from the dead is inside of you in the person of his spirit. Now, you might be thinking, well, this is all well and good. I mean, you're a pastor. Those guys in Kenya, they were pastors. So, But what about me? I'm not a pastor. I mean, can God heal me? I mean, can God work through me to heal people? Several years ago, when I was a youth pastor, Meredith and I were in a particular meeting. We had our teen leaders, and they were all in their 20s, and Meredith and I were in our 30s. And Meredith had been experiencing over the last, I don't know, month or more, weeks, whatever it was, a a lump on her arm. 
And it was as if someone had taken a pea, something the size of a pea, and stuck it underneath her skin. You could feel it. And it was seriously concerning us. And we were going to take her to the doctor. And maybe we already had. I couldn't, can't remember. But you know, they would have to do surgery, remove it, etc. And we were there in the meeting. And God laid it on Meredith's heart. She explained what was wrong. And you could see it. It was very visible. And we had prayed over it many times, Meredith and I. And she felt led to say, I need some teens right now. I need you to just come up and you're going to lay hands on me. And I want you to pray with faith that God is going to heal me of this. And so we had a couple of the teens come up. And they just laid hands. And with really bold prayers, in faith, they prayed that God would heal this lump. Would take it away. Would dissolve it. I can't remember if it was 24 hours or 48 hours later. You could not tell there was anything under her skin. Jesus had healed her. And Jesus had used teenagers, 16 years of age, who believed in Jesus. And with that very same resurrection power, through them now, by God's grace, healed this lump in Meredith's arm. Many of you sitting here this morning, your testimony is that God... He didn't just save you, he radically saved you. And here's what I mean by that. Some of you, when when Christ rescued you and invaded your life, you were an alcoholic and God set you free. And you have never gone back. Some of you were in sexual bondages, serious sexual bondages, and Jesus set you free from that. Some of you were involved in witchcraft. You practiced witchcraft on a regular basis. You saw the power of Satan displayed in your life, and it was real. But then you saw the power of the resurrection of Jesus in your life, and it set you free, and he called you out of that darkness into his marvelous light, and he forgave you of all of your sins, and he totally transformed you. I remember just... A brief little story here where God did this for Mary and Steve. They were involved in Wicca. And they had prayed, God, show us, you know, is there stuff in our paraphernalia, books, anything? And they began to get rid of this stuff from their home. And he, they, they called me late, at, very late at night one night. I happened to have been awake. And he said, Pastor Mike, we don't know what's going on, but... There is demonic activity in our house, and this is very real, and it is scary, and we need you to pray for us because we we need to see Satan kicked out of our lives, out of our family, our home, because something is going on here, and we don't understand it. And he described some things. I'm not going to go into the details of those. And I, I was about to pray, and I said, Mary... You need to check the bottom drawer of Stephen's dresser, and there is, a, there is something there, and you need to get rid of it. And they went and they checked the bottom drawer, and it was a pamphlet book of Wicca, whatever it was. I can't remember specifically. And I said, okay, this is what it is. And there is a tie here. You're going to break it. You are, this is done. You are gone for good from this. And they took it out. Steve took it out. Mary's still on the phone. And I said, Mary, you're going to need to tell him that he needs to pour lighter fluid on it and set it on fire because it will not want to burn. And Steve came back and he said, Mary, the, the book's not wanting to burn. 
And so Mary said, well, you got to dump gasoline or something on it. So he did that, and it burned it. And this very strange demonic activity that had been going on in their home, gone. The ties to the past, completely severed. People, when I speak of the resurrection power of Jesus this morning, I want you to ask that question, real or not real? And if you want to experience the reality of the resurrection power of Jesus, because maybe you need to be rescued from your sins, set free from it, bondage is broken completely in your life. This addiction, gone in Jesus' name. You need to do two things. If you were to look, I've already talked about the power of the resurrection of Jesus. He said, he says, Paul's request was, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. The first thing you've got to do is you have to know Jesus. Now, I don't mean you've got to know about Jesus any more than you need to know about the resurrection. That knowledge of the resurrection is an experience. It's a lifestyle. You need to know Jesus. You need to, you need to ask him to invade your life and rescue you from your sin. There needs to be a response of total surrender to him as the Lord of your life. I'm not talking about just some simple prayer, Jesus, I believe in you, but a heart that's, that's broken from your sin and that cries out, Jesus, I, there's no other way. I need you to come right now and rescue me that my sins were placed on you at the cross and you died for them. Wash me clean. Jesus will do this for you. And not only, as Jenny Rose was saying, will he wash you clean, but he, he will bring that very same resurrection power to break those bondages of sin in your life as well. That is what the Isaiah 61 anointed one, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me and has anointed me to proclaim good news. Jesus read this in the, in the city of Nazareth, his hometown. And he said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing because he was the anointed one. And he didn't just come to proclaim the good news, but to set the captives free. That's what he wants to do for you this morning. He doesn't just want to forgive you of your sins, as awesome as that is, but he wants to set you free in Jesus' name. Now, many of you gathered here this morning, you're, you're already a believer. And I say, amen, that is awesome. You have a testimony of how God came and, and washed you clean because he paid it all for you. And he broke it, or is in the process of breaking those bondages in your life. Amen to that. But Paul said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. You know one of the main reasons why I think that we do not experience that resurrection power in us is because we refuse to identify with the sufferings of Christ. We, we live in America and we are free to worship him and we have, many of us have good jobs and they pay well and we can actually own a home and uh, maybe it's really small, but at least we own it or, or we, we have a great job. We, we're, it, we're blessed with family. There is just blessing upon blessing upon blessing Honestly, and there is something inside of us that wants to distance ourselves from any kind of suffering for God's kingdom. Do you realize that when the disciples suffered, it was because they were willing to risk everything 
for Christ's kingdom. Resurrection, real or not real? I did talk about how the eyewitnesses lined up so well. But did you realize that James, Jesus' brother, was antagonistic toward Jesus? You can read about that in John 7. He did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. After Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his brother James. It totally transformed his life. He became one of the main leaders in the early church. How about Saul? The Bible says that he was actually one who was encouraging those to persecute Stephen, an early church believer, so that Stephen died for his faith. He held their cloaks. He looked on as Stephen proclaimed the gospel and as the stones began to fly and Stephen's life ceased. He died for the faith. Not too long later, as Saul began to persecute the church more and more and more. He wanted to go to Damascus and he wanted to be able to arrest Christians who, who, who were Jews. And they were, in his mind, following some fairy tale, some cult, some blasphemer. And he needed to throw them into jail. And so he went to arrest them. He had papers from the high priest to do this. He did make it to Damascus with that quest. On the road there, Jesus appeared to him. And it so transformed his life. The very day, for three days he was blinded. And the third day when he was filled with the Spirit and God healed him and he was able to see, he went out and began proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's what he just experienced. He experienced the resurrected Christ. The early church not only believed in Jesus, they were willing to die for him. Because they knew that this Jesus was truly raised from the dead. So convinced were they that they told everybody, anybody that they could, they told them about this awesome story of Jesus' death and resurrection And that they could experience this life transformation just as Paul had, just as as James had, just as hundreds if not thousands and thousands of others had. And the early church began to explode as a result of the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus. To bring this full circle, to identify with the sufferings of Jesus means I am willing to risk everything for him. I'm willing to step out in faith and pray for someone to be healed. I'm willing to be embarrassed about doing something like I'm willing to talk to my boss about Jesus. I'm willing to talk to my dad, who is estranged from me, about Jesus. Because when you risk it, when you step out in faith, out of your comfort zone, out of what you enjoy doing, out of the the affluence that you experience and all of the blessings, and you actually set yourself up for persecution or suffering, God honors that. And the power of Christ, that resurrection power can flow through you. Not only to heal you, but that resurrection power, boldly proclaiming Christ, laying hands on people for healing, This is what Jesus' destiny for his people is.
This is what it is. Real or not real? I want to tell you this morning, the resurrection of Jesus is real. The power of the resurrection of Jesus is real. And I want to ask you this morning, if you have never experienced that resurrection, that transforming resurrection power of Jesus that can set you free, that can wash you clean from all of your sins, regardless of how many there were, Paul had Christians killed. Jesus forgave him and gave him a powerful ministry. Jesus wants to call you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He wants to set you free. And my question to you this morning is this. Are you willing to let him do it? Are you desperate for him to do it? I'm going to close in prayer right now. But I want to pray not only for those who have never given their heart to Christ. I want to pray that the Spirit of God would heal people this morning. If you are needing Jesus to heal you, we're not going to have a line. That's not what the Lord has shown me. I I am just going to pray that the Spirit of God would heal you. But I want to pray that God transform your life this morning, even if you're a Christian. And he's going to make you a bold proclaimer of the resurrection power of Jesus. Because that is what this dying world desperately needs. Father, I ask you, Lord, that you would speak truth right now by the power of your spirit. Go beyond these words and take that truth and impart it into hearts. Some of us, God, we're teetering. We have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. And the truth of it, Father, is we have never fully surrendered to you this morning, God. May hearts be surrendered to you, totally yielded to you, longing for you, desperate for you. Invade these lives, God, please. As they reach out and as they believe in Jesus and surrender to him and make him Lord and invite him in to set them free and be their savior, I ask you, God, transform lives this morning. And I'm just going to ask you, if that is you, if that's your prayer this morning, could you just lift your hand right now? That you want Jesus to come in and and just totally transform your life. Lord God, I just ask that you would transform lives this morning. By the power of that resurrection. I ask you, Father, right now that you would begin to heal people. Father, I don't know, maybe it's a relationship that needs to be healed. Maybe they've come face to face with bitterness that we've been talking about this morning and it has such a grip on them they cannot let it go. And Father, they need you to step in and cut that off. Would you set them free, God? Would you break that chain that's enslaving them? Father, if someone needs physical healing this morning, would you touch them and heal their bodies by that very same resurrection power that you exercised 2,000 years ago and raised your own son from the dead right now. Set people free. Heal people physically, God. Heal them, Lord, internally, externally. In Jesus' name, heal them, Lord God. 
something in their bodies that's just not working properly, that you need to realign, backs that need to be realigned, muscles that are damaged and hurt, and you need to completely free them from this. Heal them, God. We come before you this morning, God, as a desperate people. Invade our life every day in this way. Thank you, God. You are so, so good. Capture our hearts fully, finally. In Jesus' name we pray.